one of my favorites, and we have we have expressed some wonderful truth this morning, haven't we? Um, this shouldn't count toward my time, but I want to refer you back to the first song we sang, Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, we are a people who believe that God's law, God's moral law, uh, will never go out of style, out of fashion, will never fail, and will there will never be a time that as God's people we say, the moral law of God is not for us. There are ten commandments, and we believe in ten of them. All ten of them. Including, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But that song expressed that as wonderful as this Sabbath has been, and it has been for me in my spirit, wonderful already. There is a day coming when we will have a Sabbath rest. And that day... There will be no night. That day of Sabbath will never be. What a day that will be. What a wonderful thing to, to have that to look forward to. Turn your Bibles this morning to the New Testament book of Acts chapter 12. Last week we considered the first part of this chapter and the providential hand of God. We saw God's providence working very differently in different circumstances with different people. And we saw that the idea, the false teaching, the idea that God can only work when men have the right kind of faith, the right volume of faith, the right quality of faith, or when men say, their prayers in some enlightened way and that enables God to work. We saw that this is a false teaching and it cannot stand up to the scrutiny of scripture. God is not limited by men in any way. That's what we looked at last week. Today we're returning to this chapter firstly because we didn't finish but also to see the whole chapter and in this context of the whole chapter to see the great shift from the first verse to the last verse to see how drastically things change from the beginning to the end of this chapter. This week we will consider some of the details of this section of scripture. So to get a fuller view and to have the whole text and its context in our minds We'll read the entirety of the chapter. It's not very long. So please follow along in your Bible as I read. Excuse me. This is the word of God. Acts 12 verse 1. Now at that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church to do them harm. And he had James, the brother of John, executed with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter as well. Now these were the days of unleavened bread. When he had arrested him, he put him in prison, turning him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending only after the Passover to bring him before the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made to God intensely by the church. Verse six, on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in the front of the doors were watching over the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord suddenly stood near Peter and a light shone in the cell and he struck Peter's side and woke him saying, get up. Well, he probably didn't have to whisper. He might have said, get up. Okay. Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, put your belt, uh, put on your belt and strap on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And yet he did not know what that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Now, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel departed from him. And Peter came to himself 
Uh, when Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many had gathered together and were praying. While he knocked at the door of the gate, a slave woman named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the front gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They said it is his angel or his ghost. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brothers. Then he left and went to another place. Just take note here that we don't know where Peter went. He didn't say. He went to another place. Verse 18. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have happened to, of Peter, what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. So Herod went to Caesarea. Verse 20, Herod is in Caesarea. Now he, Herod, was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one mind they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace, because their country was supported with grain from the king's country. On an appointed day, after putting on his royal apparel, Herod took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people repeatedly cried out, the voice of God and not a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned when they had fulfilled their mission to Jerusalem, taking along with them John, who is also called Mark. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would bless our time together as we consider these verses of Scripture. God, we pray that you would encourage your people, edify us, build us up, build our faith. Help us to understand that when our eyes are blind, you still remain. Your truth remains. Your providence remains. Help us to understand that you know the end. And in the end, your enemies will be put under your feet. Help us to love your word. Increasingly. Bless this preacher, hide me behind the cross. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This chapter opens with these words about that time Herod laid hands on some who belonged to the church to do them harm. To do them harm. James was killed. Peter was arrested. The church is gathered to pray for Peter in the home of John, Mark's mother, Mary. And let me remind you, as we saw last week, that Peter had faith in God. He was not faithless. He had sufficient faith to sleep deeply on the night that would be before his execution. But Peter, even as a man of faith, probably had no indication and no inclination that an angel would come and break him out of prison. He wasn't up and ready to go. He was asleep. 
The church was gathered to pray for Peter, but they also did not expect Peter's release. Perhaps they were praying something like this. Lord, let him receive a sentence of life in prison and not a death sentence. I mean, maybe they were praying that. I, I don't know what, and, and I would not attribute to them a lack of faith, but their faith was not expecting Peter to show up at the gate. And we see that when Peter showed up at the door, they more easily believed that this servant girl had lost her mind or that Peter's angel had come. And, and, and we're not saying that they're not people of faith. Uh, church, we need to be careful before we're too quick to criticize these praying Christians. They were meeting and they were praying and though they did not expect and were surprised at Peter showing up, I wonder if we look at the prayers and then at the actions of most of us who are here, would we see an underlying faith that is too often anemic and weak and sometimes a faith that's barely detectable? Really, that was the takeaway from last week's sermon. God's power is not limited by our weak faith, by our little faith, by our misplaced faith, by our lack of faith. God is not limited. He is all powerful. But we must also remember that God is a God of means. God uses means. And, and in, in so doing, in, in executing his decree and using means... He employs men and their actions to accomplish his purpose. So trusting in God's providence is not just resigning to fate. Whatever, case sarah, sarah. It's a cute song. It's a terrible philosophy. That is not trusting in God's providence. Whatever will be, will be. That's resigning to faith. Trusting in God's providence is obeying God's word while we trust in his provident power to preserve and govern all of creation. So church, we need to remember before we criticize to check up at home. The church was gathered in the home of John Mark's mother, Mary, and they were praying when Peter showed up. And Peter said little more here. We have a little more in the scripture other than I've been released and I'm out of here. Tell the other apostle James and all the other people. Tell, tell everybody I'm gone. And in verse 18 and following, we have the aftershocks of Peter's prison break. This was on the news. Well, if they hadn't been, this, this would have been top of CNN. This was, this was known and it was important. And aftershocks may be a, a tame word to use here. For whatever reason, perhaps because Herod had read Acts chapter five and he knew that there was a time that all the apostles were put in jail and then surprisingly without explanation they were not in jail the next day and the, they said we found the prison locked and nobody's inside so maybe Herod knew of that so he decided what well, we're going to do this time we've got Peter we're going to have an escape proof plan and it was a good plan I mean I, I say that truth it really was 16 soldiers on a rotation around the clock, four at a time. There's two outer gates, so one soldier at each gate, and then two soldiers chained to the prisoner. Whether that's his arms or his leg, they're chained to him. He's not going anywhere. And with this plan, by the way, if you hear uh, some guys coming in to break him out of prison, by the time they get past the first soldier and the second soldier, those other two that were chained to the prisoner probably would have killed the prisoner to prevent losing their, their man. Because, because here's the deal. Their lives were on the line. And we see that because that's what happened. I got to get back to my notes or this will take forever. This was a good plan. But the angel had released Peter in such a way that even the guards chained to the man 
did not wake up. I mean, was this all done in super silence and no one could see the light, but but the angel and Peter, or were they caught? Were they caused to fall into a deeper sleep? I don't know how, but this is what happened. They just woke up, and Peter was calm. So consider this: we have a figure of speech in verse eighteen. Verse eighteen, a figure of speech. I would like to ask some of you that have been through our How to Study the Bible uh, classes what figure of speech this is. But I won't, I'll just tell you, it's a Latotes. Uh, yep, I got I got head nods. Well, yep, this is a Latotes. Now, now this is where it says there was no small disturbance. This figure of speech is stating a truth by denying or negating its opposite. So to say there was no small disturbance doesn't mean there was no disturbance. <laughs> It means there was a great big disturbance. This was a big deal. And the reason for such a great disturbance is seen in the final words of verse 19. Herod put 16 guards to death. 16 men lost their lives over this deal. This was a great ordeal. And verse 19 indicates that Herod had initiated a manhunt. He interrogates the guards. You know, before those guards were put to death, their homes were probably um Tossed, looking for Peter. So, so I'd like to consider this interrogation of these soldiers and what, what Herod is hearing and the implications if Herod were to believe one thing or another, what, what's the difference in outcome? So there's a, there's, I've got three different options that Herod could believe here. Herod could believe that these guards maliciously released Peter. They were, they were in cahoots and they let him go. They either did it possibly for political reasons or maybe they were bribed, but they did it on purpose. Or option two, Herod could believe that these guards had acted incompetently and Peter broke out of prison because of their error. Now, you and I have read the whole story and we know that neither of these is true. They didn't let him go and they were not in, they did not act incompetently in this. But he could have believed either of those things. And if he believed that they were incompetent or that they acted maliciously, the guards would have been killed and they had to be killed. Because if Herod didn't kill the guards, he would appear weak. It would appear like he's unable to control the military. Not killing these guards would have been politically or could have been politically devastating. But killing the guards, Herod avoids any negative press. He avoids any negativity really whatsoever. I mean, he doesn't get the boost in the polls that he was hoping for by killing Peter, but he doesn't lose anything. Killing these 16 guards took what could be a political negative for Herod and turned it into a political neutral at least. Well, there was another thing that Herod could have believed. It's what we believe. That an angel of the Lord came. That God busted Peter out of prison. And that this was miraculous. And this release was an act of God. But then Herod would have to acknowledge God. He would have to submit to God. John Calvin said of Herod's killing the guards, it is assuredly an excellent example of blindness that whereas he ought to perceive the power of God, yet he doth not bend. Neither does he wax more meek but proceeded to resist God from obstinate malice. Herod can't admit this is from God. So he has to say these soldiers messed up and they are killed. So the first thing we note in this chapter for our time today is that sometimes it appears that things go very well for the enemies of God and God's people. Sometimes it appears that things go very well for the enemies of God and his people. 
This idea is expressed in the Psalms. The, the idea that it looks like sometimes the wicked prosper. Let me say that a different way. Sometimes it looks like the wicked prosper. Psalm 73 says this, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there is no pain in their death and their belly is fat. Can I just pause here and tell you, anytime we see fat in the scripture, it's a good thing. It's, it's, a, it's a prosperous thing. It means there's blessing. And that's what it means here. The wicked, there's no pain in their death and their belly is fat. It continues. They are not in trouble like the other people, nor are they tormented together with the rest of mankind. This is what it looks like for the wicked. That's Psalm 73. Psalm 10 says this, for the wicked boast of his, the wicked boasts of his soul's desire and the greedy person curses and shows disrespect to the Lord. The wicked in his haughtiness does not seek him. There is no God in all his schemes. His ways succeed at all times. That's what it seems like. His way, the wicked's ways succeed at all times. Yet your judgments, Lord, are on high and out of sight. As for all his enemies, the wicked's enemies, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved throughout all generations. I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing, deceit, and oppression. Under his tongue is harm and injustice. He sits in the lurking places in the village. He kills the innocent in the secret places. His eyes surreptitiously watch for the unfortunate, sneakily watching for the unfortunate. He lurks in a secret place like a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the needy. He catches the needy when he pulls him into his net, and then he crushes the needy one who cowers. And unfortunate people fall by his power. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. The psalmist says, sometimes it looks like the wicked prosper. Sometimes it looks like evil prevails. The psalmist expresses it in this way. And this chapter in Acts Chapter 12, all the way up through verse 22, it reads like this. Herod has killed James. Herod has arrested Peter with the intent to kill him. Now he's killed 16 of his own soldiers. And now he goes on a journey to Caesarea, perhaps because he had heard, like we know, Peter was just in Caesarea visiting with uh, Cornelius. And maybe Herod went there looking for him. Maybe he's still on a hunt. But it appears that for Herod, there's no consequence for his evil behavior. Perhaps this would be a source of great discouragement for those Christians who were still mourning over the death of James. They had just seen Peter arrested and now he's on the run. So they've lost two apostles, one to death and one to fleeing. They could say, we're being persecuted all day. We are being killed all day. And Herod, Herod's doing great. Herod's, Herod's doing real well. Maybe they could look around at the guy in the marketplace and they could say, look at my neighbor. This guy. He lives as though there is no God. He lives with no thought of God. And he seems to be prospering. He seems to be doing well. Christians, <laughs> you see this, don't you? That we may be tempted to think like this. We may be discouraged in this same way. If we take a snapshot at any given moment, it may look on the scoreboard like the Christians are down by a lot. It may look like evil is winning. At any moment, we may look and, and we may be discouraged, but let us not be discouraged. This chapter is encouraging. 
I read from Psalm 10. Psalm 10 begins with, Lord, why do you hide yourself from me in a time of trouble? But Psalm 10 ends with, the Lord is king forever and ever. Psalm 73 begins with, the wicked have their bellies full and they don't have trouble like the rest of the people. But it ends with this, whom do I have in heaven but you? And with you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is good for me. I have made the Lord God my refuge so that I may tell all of your works. See, these psalms began with despair, but they end with praising God. And Acts 12 is the same. It begins with Herod on the rampage, arresting and persecuting church leaders. And it ends with Herod himself being struck down and dead. Listen to John Stott about this contrast. Thus the destructive power of Herod and the saving power of God are contrasted. Indeed, throughout church history, the pendulum has swung between expansion and opposition, growth and shrinkage, advance and retreat, although with the assurance that even the powers of death and hell will never prevail against Christ's church. He continues, the chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. But it closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Brothers and sisters, this is what we get from this first point. Sometimes it appears, it appears that things go very well for the enemies of God and his people. But the power of God will surely put down his enemies. And that is our second point. God will overturn evil human plans and establish his own. And our provident God is able to take even the evil intentions of men and use them to accomplish his work. That's why our catechism says God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful. Preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. This is why Joseph could say in Genesis 50, 50, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. My eye doctor tells me it would be great if I had 20-20 vision. Christians, we need 50-50 vision. We need Genesis 50-50 vision. You meant it for evil. Who? A lot of people. How many things this week could you say that was meant for evil? Things on the news, things at work, things at school, things at home. You meant it for evil. But God, provident God, works all things together for good to them who love. It. I, I saw something on television the other day that made me so mad. They quoted Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. Period. No. God works all things together for the good of them that love him and are called according to his purpose. I got to get back to this. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Listen to Stott again. Tyrants may be permitted for a time to boast and blunder, oppressing the church and hindering the spread of the gospel. But they will not last. In the end, their empire will be broken and their pride abased. That's what we see here in this text. So the first point was, sometimes it appears that things go well for the enemies of God and his people. But God will prevail. All things work for his glory and for our good. Now I'd like to bring up a source. So I have three points and this ain't one of them. This is three points and a, and a, a side. I'd like to bring something up from outside the scripture for just a moment. There's a historian named Josephus. Now, now many of you have heard of Josephus, but I bring him up particularly today for the younger ones who are listening. 
Josephus is a history writer and Josephus is not a Christian. I say that because Josephus has no interest in backing up or lending credibility to the New Testament scriptures. He has no interest in that. But allow me to read these comments that compare Josephus's history book account and Luke's account here in Acts. And then you'll see why I'm doing this. Josephus also described in graphic detail the circumstances surrounding Herod's death. His account and Luke's account, Luke's here in Acts, differ from one another in a few details which show that they are independent. It's not like Josephus copied off of Luke or Luke copied from Josephus. But their general outline is the same. They both agree that Herod was in Caesarea at the time, although Josephus said he had gone there to participate in a festival in honor of Caesar, which was attended by a large crowd of leading citizens. Both mentioned the royal robes that Herod was wearing, but Josephus adds the detail that his garment was, quote, made wholly of silver and out of a contexture truly wonderful which shone so brightly in the morning sun that people hailed him as a god. Upon this, Josephus continued, the king died, a uh, king never did rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. So Luke and Josephus are in agreement that Herod died because God struck him because he did not reject and but rather accepted the worship of the people. Luke says he was eaten by worms, but Josephus is content to say no more than this general statement that a severe pain arose in his belly, which became so violent that he was carried to his palace where five days later he died. I'm going to try to say this quickly. Where Josephus and the Bible differ we trust the word of God. Amen. Josephus is a man. Josephus may be prone to error. Josephus is a historian like any other historian, and he could have some things off. But most of the things in this account, not in all of Josephus' writing, but in this account, most of the things are details that are left out in one or the other. Josephus didn't say he wasn't eaten by worms. The Bible says he was, but that's just a detail left out. The Bible doesn't tell us the purpose for Herod going to Caesarea. I speculated that he heard Peter had been there before. Maybe he went back there. I'm going to go find him. Josephus says, no, he went for games. He went for the, for the games. Those things are not contradictory. They're just left out. And, and I say that for this reason. Why would you bring this up, Pastor? Because young people, I want you to see that the things we read in the word of God are true. It's not as though there is no foundation outside of the pages of this book. This book is not like any other. It is the word of God. But our faith, that we believe it by faith, but our faith is not just blind faith. Our faith has as support many points of history. And this is one of those things that a historical account from Josephus plays right into and leads right up to the word of God. I want you to understand we believe the scripture by faith, but our faith is greatly supported by the facts of history. These things are not just fairy tales. So the first point was that sometimes things appear to go very well for the enemies of God. The second point is that evildoers will always be brought down. And I'm going to spend a few more minutes here. Evildoers will always be brought down and Herod is no exception. Acts 12 does not leave us hanging. We have it all right here on the same page. Herod is brought down. Verse 20 says there was a conflict that arose between Herod and the people of Tyre and Sidon. All the details of this, we don't know all the details, uh, but what we do know is there's a conflict. We know what scripture gives us. 
And it's clear that Herod, when he is very angry with Tyre and Sidon, he didn't put them down by military force. He chose a different way to bring them under subjection, to bring them under his thumb. He chose a different way that took a little bit more time, but it's pretty ruthless. See, Tyre and Sidon are coastal cities, and thus they primarily deal in shipping, in imports and exports. Here's what they didn't deal in, farming, raising food. They could take their imports and trade with Herod's country for food. That's what they would do. And here Herod has frozen the trade and thus stopped the supply of food to these cities of Tyre and Sidon. And they are hungry and they are seeking peace. They have been brought to their knees through starvation at the hands of Herod. So we see this desperate people having worked probably through bribing, through some financial remuneration relationship with Blastus to get access to Herod. Now they have a place at the negotiating table. Their place is more like, we'll do anything. That's kind of where they're at. They are ready to concede to anything to get food coming back into their cities for their people. This is their mindset when they gather to hear Herod address them. Some think Herod came there to read scripture. Some think he came there to, uh, to make some address to the people. Josephus would have us to believe that he was pronouncing his blessing on the games. Things are going pretty well for Herod. He had won favor when he killed James. He had saved face over Peter's escape. Now Tyre and Sidon are on their knees, pandering over him. And he apparently had a new suit made for the occasion. I mean, Josephus tells us that this, which was really royal robes, Josephus tells us it was made of silver. Now, this is all conjecture. Not conjecture. We have a history book that tells us that. It's not the word of God. Maybe he had a suit made of silver. Maybe it had silver plates on it that would reflect the morning sun. I tend to believe that, I tend to believe this, first of all. I have no reason not to. And I tend to believe that this silver had in some way been spun into thread and this garment made of silver thread that would glisten and would catch the morning sun with any movement. Remember, there were a couple of occasions that we've already read in Acts when people fall down before Peter or the other apostles and worship them. What happens? Every time. And, and by the way, throughout scripture, people have fallen down before angels to worship them. And just like with the apostles, same thing with the angels. No, no, no. Get up. The apostles said, Peter said, I'm just a man. I'm just like you. Get up. And then they point to Jesus Christ is the one, the only one worthy of worship. Well, here Herod is worshiped as a God. Look at verse 21. On the appointed day after putting on his royal apparel, Herod took his seat on the rostrum and began to deliver an address to them. The people were repeatedly crying out, the voice of God and not a man. And Herod received that. He did not correct them. Whether he was wearing a suit of silver glistening or not, Whatever he had on, the people worshipped him. Whatever he said, the people worshipped him as a god. They may have been overcome by his clothes. Or they may have just been desperate to pander to this God so that he'll do what we need. Whatever the reason, they worshipped him and Herod liked it. There again, 
before you condemn. And, and this is sin. But before, before you condemn, search your own heart. Would you like it? They worshipped Herod and Herod liked it. He bathed in that moment in the glory of the worship of men. Worship and glory that belonged to the one true and living God. And he took it for himself. And verse 23 says, immediately. I'm off my notes and we're over time, but parents, sometimes there's things that get punishment later. And sometimes there's things that need to be punished immediately. There's, there's some good parenting stuff that can be dug out of this. Herod accepts that worship and immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. Aren't you glad that we are given the reason? We're told the reason. He did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms. The scripture tells us that immediately he was struck by the angel and he died. It could be as Josephus said, that it was five days later that he died after five days of excruciating pain. What an awful thought to be eaten by worms. Now, apparently, being eaten by worms is not as rare as we 21st century folks would like to think. There were others who had been eaten by worms but just because it happened more often then than it does now doesn't make it any less agonizing. So chapter 12 shows us that sometimes it appears that things go well for the enemies of God and his people. But before it's all said and done, evildoers will always be brought down. The Bible tells us that every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow. The knees of those Christians who were praying for Peter and mourning over James, their knees will bow. The knees of every Christian today will bow. And yes, the knee of Herod will bow before Jesus Christ. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Even Herod will confess this truth. Some of you may think you won't have to bow. Some of you may think you won't have to confess. You believe that if you're just quiet, stay out of God's way, that maybe he won't notice. Well, God notices all things. God sees all things. And he knows that you declare with your life that you will not bow. You may not say it out loud. You may not have the guts to say it out loud. But you declare with your life, I will not bow to Jesus. You, you confess in your practical living that you are Lord. Friend, you will bow. You will confess that Jesus is Lord. I beg you today to repent of your stubborn pride and confess this now. Jesus is Lord. Bow your knee now before Jesus Christ. If you wait until you are forced to bow and to confess in the age to come, it will be too late to save your soul. You will perish in your sin and you will be bound for hell. Don't follow the prideful path of Herod. Run to Jesus in repentant faith. Allow me to paraphrase Calvin, John Calvin in saying this. If God judged Herod so harshly, Herod, who was puffed up and arrogant and prideful over his kingly position and his wealth and his royal status. If God judged him so harshly, 
How much more should we expect to be judged when we are puffed up and arrogant and prideful and we have no cause to be? We don't have what Herod had. But our pride rivals his. So let us abandon our pride. Let us cease from following Herod's arrogant path. And let us seek the path for joy and lasting hope and peace. We see this in verse 24. We, we've seen sometimes it appears that things go well for the enemies of God and his people. We've seen that evildoers will always be brought down. Now, lastly, in verse 24, we see that God's word will stand forever. It will never fail and it will be effective to accomplish the purposes for which God has sent it. Verse 24, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. Christians, too much of our lives are focused and centered around something other than the word of God and the God of the word. Too much of our time is spent on things that will one day burn with fire. We have to be in the world. Everybody that's got to go to work tomorrow morning says, yep, we got to be in the world. But the scripture tells us we are not to be of the world. That's a, that's a difficult balance in and not of. Satan would have you be unbalanced. Satan would have you, and, and he doesn't care how you're unbalanced. Just don't be where God's word is. Satan would have you try to be not in the world. Or have you be so much involved and wrapped up in the world. Living so close to the world. That you can't see a difference. There is a balance that we must live, Christians, of in and not of. It's not easy. But one way that we can, one way that we can watch ourselves to see that we're not making too much of the world is that we make much of God's word. We can watch ourselves to see that we don't make too much of the world by making much of the word because it, the love of the Father and the love of the world can coexist. For you, for your family, you need to make God's word a central point of your life. For you, for your family, for all of life, the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied, verse 24. And today, the word of the Lord continues to grow and be multiplied. And when you can't see how it's growing and being multiplied, guess what? The word of the Lord continues to grow and be multiplied. And if you want to be in a path of, of eternally significant growth and multiplication, read the word. Love the word, attend the preaching of the word. And when you're there, be present for the preaching of the word. Know the word, obey the word, walk in the word, stand firm on the foundation for our faith that is laid in the word of God. Sometimes it appears that things go well for the enemies of God and his people. But evildoers will be brought down. And the word of God will never fail. Lord, as we come now to the close of this service, to this ordinance, to this table that is laid here before us, help us to, to now understand the nature of the ordinance. The nature of of the table. Help us to see Jesus Christ, who is spiritually present with us for his people who come to this table. Apply to our hearts by faith the word that we have just heard. Give us assurance of our love for and our union to Christ as your people. Give us assurance of your love for us. 
Complete in us the work that you have begun. Confirm in us your covenant that you've given yourself for us, that we are yours by grace through faith. Lord and Christ, as we are preparing even now to come to this spiritual feast, help us to recall the sins that need to be confessed and repented of. Sins of omission. Sins of neglecting our own souls, neglecting the spiritual well-being of our families. The, the sins of neglecting our church and our responsibilities in the church. Neglecting our responsibilities in the public square. Bring to our minds sins of unloving behavior toward our brother and our sister. Sins of gossip, sins of slander, other sins committed, so many sins committed with our tongues. God, help us to confess and to repent of these sins right now in this very hour. Give us the courage to ask someone who we need to for forgiveness. Give us the courage as believers in Jesus Christ to confess our sins to one another. As your word instructs, show us our own selfishness. Show us where instead of being childlike, we are just childish. Show us our sins of not delighting in you and in your word. Not speaking for you. Show us our sin of pride. That keeps us from obeying you. Keeps us from speaking in public for you. That brings to our minds the fear of men. Forgive us of our idleness. Forgive us of our lukewarmness. Forgive us of our laziness. Our complacency. God help us now. In this moment. And always. To rest wholly. In Jesus Christ. Help us to see that his life and his death. Is our righteousness. And our ransom. Help us to look to his resurrection. And his ascension. As affirmation. And as expectation. For our eternity. That Sabbath rest. That we will one day enjoy. With you in heaven. In eternity. Help us now, as we approach your table, fill us with all grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.